His name is David. And now it's King David. We're looking at 2 Samuel now from chapter 1 through chapter 7. This is the zenith of David's rise to power. He is going to be coronated as the king, the only king of a united Israel. And this is not like the other kings. This king, he's a man after God's own heart. And because David is this king, he will establish the capital city of Jerusalem. He will bring peace and justice throughout Israel. And then he will make a safe place for God to come and enjoy the presence with his people. That's what we're looking at today. This epic, this era, right, we're looking at 80 years or so, it's the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament. This is the first time this will happen. God's king, God's city, bringing God's presence. God's king, God's city, bringing God's presence. This is what the celebration looks like. He said, so, so David went down and he brought up the ark of God to the city of David with rejoicing. And David, wearing a linen ephod, he danced before Jehovah with all of his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of Jehovah and with shouts and sounds of trumpets. And they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And, and David sacrificed burnt offerings there and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he'd finished sacrificing burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then look at all he's giving away. Then he gives a loaf of bread and cake of dates and cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and the women, and all of the people went to their homes rejoicing. Oh, yeah, they bet they did, because it was God's king and God's city bringing God's presence. They knew, they knew how special this was. This has only happened two times in all of human history. It will only happen three times in the history of mankind. And this is the first time. And this is more than history. This is not just a bunch of historical facts that we're going to look at today. This event that's taking place here, it is the longing in the soul of every man and woman that has a heart towards God. It is, it is the hope. It is the object of what we long for. Have you ever noticed in uh, when you pray, you're what you're praying for is what you hope for. It's what you long for. Sometimes I don't know what I want until I say it out loud in a prayer. And I'll say, yeah, that's it. That's what I was wishing. That's, that's where my object of my faith is. With that in mind, this is how Jesus teaches us how to pray. This is how Jesus teaches us how to hope. This is what Jesus says, long for this. When Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom coming, God's kingdom coming, that is the hope that Abraham was living with when he's roaming around Canaan 
living in tents. The vision for the kingdom of God is just an acorn in the life of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, but it was there. That's what they were hoping in. And certainly in Joshua and Caleb in their conquest period, they were conquering the land that God had promised them because that's where the kingdom would, would come to fruition. And Ruth and Naomi, they wanted to live in a world where people did on earth as they would in heaven. You cannot understand world history without understanding and grasping Israel and her capital, Jerusalem. You can't fathom what God is doing in the timeline and the plan of salvation for the last 4,000 plus years unless you know this. This passage, this story here is about the kingdom. This is God's king bringing about his city, God's city. So it's a Christmas story so that God would be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what's happening in this story that we see in First Samuel or Second Samuel chapters 1 through 7. God's king. Let's look at that. This is David finally being anointed in chapter, this is, this is uh, the, the Chronicles interpretation of what took place. He said, the leaders came to Hebron fully determined to make David the king over, Israel, over all of Israel. And all the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David king. It was a festival. Let's read about it. And the men spent three days there with David, eating and drinking. And there was Plentiful supplies of flour and fig cakes and raisin cakes and wine and olive oil and cattle and sheep. There was great joy in all of Israel. Because at last, at last, we have a courageous, God-fearing king. And keep in mind, you have to keep this in mind. It's in the context of David being anointed as the king of Israel as a boy. And he suffers through 15 years of a nomadic existence as a persecuted man of God. And now, here it is. And I want you uh, to see, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to point out some things that I think the author is trying to show us. But you'll need to go back and read through First Samuel, or 2 Samuel 1 through 7 and look for these clues. Because the author wants us to, to, to know attributes of David what it means to be after God's own heart, in the way that he tells the story. He wants, to, he wants us to ascribe to the things that David holds to, these, these character traits that make him a godly man. And, and he's going to use, David's going to use his authority and his resources as king to show us how we're supposed to live our lives as well. Okay? So the first attribute that the author wants us to know about David, that we're to have in our lives, is that David is innocent. That David is without blame. In other words, that throughout the entire storyline of David coming to a place of power and becoming king, his rise to power, the, the author uses extensive detail in 1 Samuel and also in 2 Samuel to show you that David never grabbed for that crown. He was not selfishly ambitious to get what God wanted for him and God even promised him. David is showing himself to be faithful, not just in the faithful in the promise that God gave him, but also 
in God's way of doing it, and particularly in God's timing. He's not going to just grab what he wanted, what God promised him. As a matter of fact, just two great examples of this is to show you how tempting it was. There were two circumstances that we've talked about before that that Saul, the previous king, is literally hunting to kill David. And in the context of of that hunting expedition, Saul is put in, in extremely vulnerable circumstances so that David could kill the king and become the new reign. And in both, those, in both of those stories, people around David are reminding David, this is God's will. This is, God wants you to be king. You've already been anointed king. Just do this. But in those stories and more to come, he won't. David wants to maintain his innocence. He wants God's will. He wants it God's way. He wants it with God's timing. David is leading us by example not to take control, not to be manipulative, to even get what God wants for us. He wants us to learn how to be humble. Those 15 years of of running and being filtered were a kiln to humble his soul. David's showing us what this passage means in 1 Peter where it says that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty, sovereign, providential hand that he might lift you up in due time, that he would lift you up in time. So, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. David shows himself to be faithful in his consistent commitment to the promises of God and to the timing of God. And because he won't go ahead of God, what I love about the story is, you see this repetitiously, that he has confidence that it was God's doing. See, he has a God story because he got out of God's way. And because he sought after the Lord, you'll see this several times, I sought after the Lord, he waited on the Lord, he obeyed the Lord, and then the next thing that he'll say, and then he knew the Lord did this for him. You want great God stories where you absolutely know God is providing for you in some way, a way that you think that God would probably want? You have to obey. You have to trust God in God's will, but also in God's way and God's timing. And so David is forever faithful. He is is faithful to his father. He is faithful to Saul. He is faithful to Samuel. David is is faithful as a shepherd. He's faithful as a musician. He's Faithful as a general, he is faithful to God. David shows himself a man of faith, being a man after God's own heart, by doing everything the Lord wanted him to do, but nothing more. David longed for justice, but he sought the Lord and let the Lord do the justice in his life. David does, look, you can't get the purposes of God by breaking the laws of God. And I find, personally, this is the most difficult temptations for me. It's, it's not trying to go after something that's sinful. It's when you, when, when I, or maybe you too, maybe you can appreciate this, when you go after something that's good, you go after something that the Lord wants you to have, maybe even the Lord promised you. Maybe somebody owes you money. I mean, it's your money. It's your right, justice, it's mine. But you go after it in a way that doesn't honor God. And why is that? Because you get tempted 
by the time that's gone by or just fatigue, right? You're just getting worn down by it. And you say, you know, I've waited this long. I get it. I'm going to grab that crown that I was promised. No. David says, David's supposed to, he's bringing us examples of faith. Seek the Lord. Find his will. Wait for it. It's not like David is passive. When you read through the story, you'll see he's very engaged in whatever the Lord's telling him to do. But when there's a line of, I want to get God's will my way, he won't do it. A great adjective here, I think, is, is submission. David is submissive to the timing of God. He's submissive to the patience of God. And you can see that's a pattern um, throughout the Bible, if you look at kind of a bigger picture of how God works, you'll see that God is the main character in the storyline of salvation throughout the Bible, and a saint is defined by a person that seeks the Lord, finds out what God's doing, and then gets there <laughs> and serves God's purpose. I find sometimes my own ambition is I'm going to do great things for God and then like call in like an airstrike or something. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go do great things for you, Lord. I'm going to ask you to back me on this. That's not the pattern of what it means to be a submissive believer. <laughs> Success in, in ministry that God has for you in your life is for you to seek what the Lord's doing, how he wants you to do it, the means, and then wait for the timing. David's story is to give us confidence in being submissive to the whole sovereign will of God. Not just his will, but the way he's willing to do it. As Proverbs says, better is a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. David is innocent. Another attribute that David has, I think the author wants us to see, is that David is generous. To be God's king, he is to be generous. And you'll see when you read those chapters, you're going to see David constantly giving and serving. He's going to take the attributes that, and position that God gives him. He has great power and great wealth, and he's going to use that not to serve himself, but to serve all the other people. Look, here's a little example of it is in, in chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, And so David made the fortress his home, and he called it the city of David. And he extended the city, but look how he starting at the supporting terraces and then working inward. Now, scholars will tell you that you know, it was pretty common when a king got his new town, whenever he would do stuff, it was always about expanding. You know, bigger's better. Maybe even dilute your assets to make it look like you're bigger than you really are. And David here says, no, no, no. He's taken the city of Jerusalem at this point, and he looks around and he says, no, I want everyone living within the walls to feel safe. I want it to be beautiful. I'm going to use my resources, my power, and my wealth. I'm going to use this to help and serve the people that God's given me. You can see this especially because the style of writing is always contrastive. You, if you can hearken back to remember Saul, where he partially kind of obeyed the Lord when he partially defeated the Amalekites. Remember, the, there's a section in there where it says, and then Saul went to make a monument for himself. That's what kings do, not David. 
He's going to make things right for everyone else. And what's interesting is when you see what happens when a person is drawn towards God to serve God and to serve others with their assets and resources, you'll see that God honors that. God blesses him. Look what happens in the very next verse. And then David became more and more powerful because the Lord God, the Lord God of heaven's armies, the Lord Almighty, was with him. He knew that. And now watch what happens. Because David is giving you can't outgive God. Next verse. Look what happens. And then King Haram of Tyre, okay, that's a non-Jewish king, sent messengers to David and said, hey, I'm going to send along with them cedar timbers and carpenters and stonemason, and they built David a palace. David is, is spending his time thinking about and caring for other people. God says, well, I'm going to send a non-Jewish king and he, he's going to send, he's going to send the, the stone, he's going to send the cedars, he's going to send the carpenters and the stonemasons, he's going to build your palace. David doesn't pay for his own palace because God is honoring his generosity. Look, if you do God's will, God's way, God's timing, you get God's stories, and you're confident of that. Look, look how it ends. And David realized that Jehovah had confirmed him as king over Israel and had blessed his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So you and I, to use this as an example of what it means to be a great king, God's king, in our own lives, whatever our resources are, whatever our position is, and, you know, it doesn't have to be anything, really. But we're to give and care and serve. So if you own your own company, sure, yeah, use that position to be a giver, not a taker. If you're, you're the captain of a football team, serve your players. Don't rule over them. Even if you're an older sibling, you use the fact that you're bigger and farther along and have advantages. Use that not to bully but to care for and nurture and strengthen your younger brother, younger sister. It's everywhere. It's using all, look at it the other way. If you use power, wealth, resources that you have that are given by God, and you use that to take and to get, there is a word for that. I've said it. You're a bully. And you can be a bully on a playground because you're, you know, half a foot taller than anybody else, and you're going to show everybody who's in charge here. Or you could use those assets and resources to maybe have fun and have peace and tranquility break out. There's bullies that are school teachers and are coaches and politicians. They take what God has given them so that they can get. That's the normal king. This is God's king. He's generous. And we become like God's king when we use what God has given us to help other people. We glorify God that way. God's king He's innocent. God's king is generous. God's city. God's king, God's city. David now is, once he's the undisputed king of a unified Israel, the storyline accelerates rather quickly, and the first thing that David does is he takes Jerusalem. He takes Jerusalem to be God's city. From Genesis chapter 14 to Revelations chapter 22, Jerusalem is the most mentioned city in the Bible. Over 800 times. It's the city of David. It's the city of God. 
the, in the southwest section of Jerusalem, there's a mount called Mount Zion. Just that mount is referenced over 150 times. Because Israel is a city of peace. It is a city of sacrifice. It's a city of peace. One of the first mentions of, Israel, of Jerusalem. First mentions of Jerusalem is in Genesis where Abraham goes and has a conversation with the king of Jerusalem. It's called Salem. And his name is Melchizedek. And his name means the king of peace. Melchizedek. Of king of righteousness, rather. The name Salem means peace. The king of righteousness rules the city of peace. <laughs> it's, the, it's the city of sacrifice. In Genesis, we learn of another mount in Jerusalem, and it's called Mount Moriah. It's where Abraham has been told by God to take Isaac, his son, his only son, the one he loves, up to Mount Moriah, where Isaac will carry the lumber on which he will be sacrificed. Before Abraham offers Isaac to be sacrificed, an angel is sent by God and interrupts that, and the Lord provides a sacrifice that day. But that's Mount Moriah, where blood is shed, because later, that's where the temple will be built. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest will go into the Holy of Holies, on Mount Moriah, and sacrifices will be made so the blood that will cover that holy seat of the Holy of Holies so that we might have not a principal payment but just an interest payment so that we might have a temporary at-oneness with God. Jerusalem. <laughs> there is no place like it is God's city. It's where God meets man. It's where God will rule a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it is said, is the fulcrum for the entire universe. God's king, God's city, God's presence. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the vision. That's the promise from God. And for that to take place, that kingdom, there will be peace in that kingdom. So the author spends some time focusing on David bringing justice and peace finally to the land of Israel. No sooner that he becomes the anointed king of the United Kingdom period, the Philistines are trying to take advantage of his naivete, I guess, and so they attack. But David finds out, and then I want you to see how the pattern of David's life is to seek after the Lord, find out what, he's, what the Lord wants to do, and then he obeys this. This is what happens in the, in the skirmish. And so David inquired of Jehovah, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? You know, God's will, God's way, God's timing. I want to make sure I have a God story here. And so God answers and tells him and how it ends in verse 20. And so David went to, to uh, Baal Perazim and he defeated the Philistines there. Look, he knows with confidence that Jehovah did it, David ex exclaimed. Philistines haven't had enough. They want one more round. And so they go after it again in verse 22. And then after a while, the Philistines returned and again spread out across the valley of Riphium. And then again, David asked, what the, asked the Lord what to do. 
He wants to make sure it's another God story where God gets all the credit, God gets all the glory, even for a military defeat. And so in verse 25, and David did what Jehovah commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Now, I know this looks like just a couple of another battle stories in the Bible, but these are significant. This is a high water mark for, for Israel and their difficulties with the Philistines. This goes all the way back to the beginning chapters of 1 Samuel, how the story gets started with the Philistines taking, stealing the Ark of the Covenant. And these two battles would be comparable to our Battle of the Bulge and Battle of Berlin. Because these are definitive defeats of the Philistines. As a matter of fact, there's like one more skirmish with David and the Philistines, and then there's no more real mention of the Philistines. And David bringing peace to Israel, significant because he's God's king, he's going to turn the kingdom over to his son, King Solomon, whose name literally means peace, and he won't have to fight a single battle. And this 80 years... Listen, this 80 years is when there was peace in the Middle East. <laughs> That's it, right here, because it's God's king and God's city bringing God's presence, and part of God's presence is peace. David does that. The last attribute of God's presence that I want to draw to our attention is worship, because God's king here knows the heart of God, and now that he's unified the country, he's made things peaceful, he does what is deep within his soul's desire. I want God's presence. Where is that ark? The ark of the covenant. David calls up in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, he calls that the ark would be brought in to that fortified city of Jerusalem. The ark. The physical symbol of, of understanding the nature of God. And again, in contrast to other kings where those kings draw attention to themselves, make statues in their own image, David wants all the attention to be brought to Jehovah God who has brought about his success, who, who is to be glorified and gets all the glory for everything's taking place in Israel's life. The ark has been all but forgotten for 50 years, but not by David. This is all part of maybe the seed that God put in his heart and he puts in our hearts. God's king, God's city, God's presence. David just wanted to be near God. Brings that ark in. I promise you, you could see it from his palace. I bet you could see it from his bedroom window. He wants to be close. And that's what it is to be. Having a heart for God means you, you just enjoy worship. You enjoy celebrating you enjoy talking about how great God is. Let me read again how, how this plays itself out. This time, the Chronicle, how he tells the story. And this is interesting because it, it, it's only happened one time where the king takes on the role of a priest. David is going to be a king and a priest in this story. It says, and then the ark of God was placed inside a special tent that David had prepared for it, and he presented burnt offerings. David presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. And when he had finished the sacrifices, David blessed all the people in the name of Jehovah. And then he gathered the Levites, and he taught them this song of thanksgiving. Listen to how David brags about our God, sovereign God of the universe. I love this. 
Give thanks to Jehovah and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what he has done. Sing to him. Yes, sing him praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. Exalt his holy name. Rejoice, you who worship Jehovah. Search for the Lord in all of his strengths and continually seek him. Remember the wonders that he's performed. Remember the miracles and all the rulings that he has given us. He is Jehovah. He is our God. His justice is seen through the land. Do you remember the covenant that he made us forever? Remember how he, he, he committed the, the commitment that he made to thousands of generations? The covenant he made to Abraham and the oath he swore to Isaac that he confirmed with Jacob in his decrees and to all the people of Israel the never-ending covenant that I will give you the land of Canaan as your special possession. <laughs> oh, nations of the world, recognize Jehovah and recognize Yahweh as the glorious and the strong. Give the Lord the glory that he deserves. Bring your offerings. Come into his presence. Worship the Lord in all of his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. And tell all the nations, the Lord reigns. Give thanks to Yahweh. He is good. His faithfulness and his love endures forever. Let's end it the way they did. And all of the people, everybody, and all of the people said, Amen. Amen. And pray. <laughs> Holy is his name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. When we were looking at our preaching schedule for this fall, we were wondering what are we going to do with this passage? <laughs> this celebration of the presence of God. And some of the guys and gals came up with this. Why don't we have a special night of worship for this? So we're going to have a special night of worship tonight. We'd love everyone to come back from 6.30 to 7.30. We'll have a communion service reminding us of the covenant that God has made us, the new covenant. It'll be a family-friendly event. We'll have, uh, we'd love your children to join us from maybe first grade and up. We'll have child care for the young ones to five-year-old. But let's, let's come back. Let's just celebrate. Let's just praise God for who he is and what he's done. God's king, God's city, God's presence. It happened a second time. There was another shepherd born in Bethlehem. He was a good, good shepherd. And he was innocent. Jesus. He suffered in every way like us except without sin. He served as the Passover lamb that was without spot or wrinkle. Like David, he was anointed when he was younger, baptized by John the Baptist. And the Spirit came upon him and said, and you heard heaven speak from the Father's voice, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus sought the Lord sought the Father's will and his timing. Years later, he would finally get recognized as the king that he is. And when he's being led down from um, Mount of Olives on that donkey and people are claiming him to be king and they're praising him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, 
Listen to what Mark says the people are shouting, and I want you to see that they knew. They knew what was lodged inside their heart going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They knew what what was happening right in front of them. They said this, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They knew Jesus was a fulfillment of David, of the promises that were made to David. Jesus would weep for Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives like David had done a thousand years before. And this king, he is generous. This king will give his very life for his sheep. For God so loved the world, he gave his son, his only son, the one that he loved. And like Isaac before him, he literally carried the lumber of his sacrifice up Mount Moriah. And when it was time to sacrifice, there would be no angel to intervene because this would not be a place of mercy. It would be a place of justice. And the Father's holiness and his wrath was taken out upon this good shepherd this king, so the fulfillment of the day of atonement would be realized. And no more interest payments, the principal was paid in full. And it's because of that act of obedience and in the timing of the Father that we say that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God's king and God's city bringing God's presence. Listen, know this. This is our only hope. This is the object of all of our soul's longings. The sorrow, the evil, the injustice, it can't be fixed. This is what we live and will die for. This is the hope of the world, the return of this king, God's king to God's city to ultimately bring about his presence the third time. I want, I want to read for you what it's going to be like. I'd like for you to maybe close your eyes and try to imagine. Lord, I'd ask your spirit to help us embrace the fullness of his promise. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a, like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from that throne saying, Look, God's home is now among the people. He will live with them and, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. 
Here's God's king. And Jesus was the one sitting on that throne. And he said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And to all who are thirsty, I will give you freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. I will be their God, and they will be my children. And this happens in God's city. And so he took me to the, in the spirit to a great and a high mountain, and he, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending from heaven, from, from God himself, and it shone with the glory of God, and it sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper. It was as clear as crystal. All that to bring God's presence to us. And I, I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord Almighty and the Lamb was in the temple, was its temple. And the city had no need for the sun or the moon, for the glory of God illuminated the city and the Lamb was its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all of its glory and the gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring glory and honor into that great city. Look up. Let's end together like Revelation does. Let's all say, say together, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the focus of our hope. I'd like to end uh, today our time together with some worship by why don't we just stand together? And if you're next to someone that you feel like you, it'd be okay if you held their hands, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. The focus of our hope is the prayer that Jesus gave us. Let's all say this out loud together. It's on the screen so we get the words right. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be in our name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our debts as we are forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's the kingdom of power and the glory forever. <laughs> we long for that day, Lord Jesus. Let us be faithful followers until that day we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.